Hi, it's John here. This is episode three of a special three-part series on checks and balance about critical race theory. Do go back and listen to episodes one and two if you haven't already. But for the rest of this episode, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Tamara Jilksbohr. Carrying Puerto Rican, Mexican, Ecuadorian, and American flags, the protesters made their way up the National Mall. Their banners read, We are America or Rights for All Immigrants. Their chant, Si Se Puede, would soon be adopted in its English translation by the future president. Yes, we can. This was April 2006, one of a series of nationwide protests against a bill passed by the House of Representatives that would make it a felony to be an undocumented immigrant or to help an undocumented immigrant. In high schools across the country, students were walking out by the thousands. Republicans hate Latinos, okay? Republicans hate Latinos. Now, we know... Republicans hate Latinos. This is Dolores Huerta, a labor organizer and Chicana activist, talking to students at Tucson High Magnet School at the time. I could only find a clip in an online documentary called Outlawing Dolores Huerta, which is why you can hear the strange music underneath. Take that comment on its own, and it sounds like a straightforward partisan attack. But Huerta says... The context is important. My message to the students that I was speaking to was that you don't have to walk out. It's great that what you did, it showed courage uh, and valor to do that, but there's other ways that we can also make our our voices heard. And one of the ways would be to send a a postcard, do a postcard campaign, and get everybody to send postcards uh, to the Republican National Committee saying, why do Republicans hate Latinos? Because we know that that the whole anti-immigrant uh, campaign has been mostly against uh, people from Mexico, people from Latin America. And it's, it hasn't been against people from Canada. It's been mostly against Latinos. Whatever her reasons, this set off a firestorm among Republicans. As I mentioned in the last episode, GOP politicians in Arizona banned the Mexican-American history course until this later was deemed unconstitutional and it was reinstated. Some say that Huerta's comments and the subsequent reaction started the fight over ethnic studies in Arizona. When I came across this months into my reporting, I was struck by the similarities to the current anti-CRT frenzy. Something is taken out of context. Politicians gin up anger. Real anger follows. Claims are made about harm to students. Legislators get involved. Educators are banned from discussing certain topics. Just like the Aztec chant I discussed in the previous episode, this felt like deja vu. It seems simple. The anti-CRT movement is another iteration of the usual fight between progressives and conservatives. Or is it? I'm Tamara Jilkspor, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. This is the final episode of a special three-part series in which I'm investigating the battle over what's taught in America's public schools. So far, I've asked, what is critical race theory? And looked at how a graduate-level academic theory became a rallying call of the right. I then went into the classroom to see what was really going on. I found that there may be some overlap between CRT and elements of programs like ethnic studies. 
And there is plenty of anecdotal evidence of teachers getting it wrong. But there is no proof CRT is causing harm on a large scale. That led me to wonder whether there's something else going on and how the anti-CRT movement became such a powerful social, legislative, and political force in its own right. In this episode, I'm going to get to the bottom of that and ask, why is this happening now? Ever since schooling became compulsory over 100 years ago, conservatives, progressives, and families have been fighting over what their kids should learn. From teachers being labeled as communists in the McCarthy era, to the textbook wars of the 1970s, and the fight over national history standards in the 1990s, right through to the ethnic studies battle in Tucson, it is tempting to think of the anti-CRT movement as simply part of a larger history of progressives battling out with conservatives. America is unique because it was founded on ideals, equality, freedom of religion, and other forward-thinking notions at the time. Americans tend to have a strong sense of pride. Many believe that America is the greatest, or one of the greatest, countries on Earth. Conservatives tend to argue that kids should learn an optimistic version of American history. But despite mostly sharing in the belief of America's exceptionalism, liberals are open to a more fragmented, less flattering version of the country's past. That's what I thought this was all about when I first started reporting for this podcast in December. I even wrote an article saying as much last summer. But now I realize there's more to it than that. First, let's talk about 2020. That was a unique year, to say the least. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States, airports around the world. The mortality of this is multiple times what seasonal flu is. As the crisis sweeps the nation, the toll is growing by the hour. At least four states, including Oregon and Ohio, have now ordered all schools closed. It's a desperate measure. Teaching became extra complicated during the pandemic. This is what we are talking about today. When school restarted after the summer recess in August 2020 in Sullivan County, Tennessee, classes were hybrid. Some kids came in, others stayed home, which meant that lessons like this one were recorded and uploaded online. Now, whoops, yesterday, the NBA... This is Matthew Hahn. His contemporary issues class covered current events. And in this lesson from August 27th, he decided to talk about the violent protests that had just broken out in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Hahn compared the shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man who was shot seven times and subsequently paralyzed while being arrested by police, to the peaceful, nonviolent arrest of Kyle Rittenhouse, a white 17-year-old who shot three people, killing two of them, in the same town two days later. Now, my question to you, and this is going to be a, this is going to be a tough one for you to think about, is how is that not a definition of white privilege? An African-American 29-year-old male was walking to his car, hands up. Now, Full disclosure, they did find a knife in the car and is shot seven times, 
a 17-year-old white male then walks to police with his hand on the gun and is taken peacefully. How is that not privilege? Han accidentally uploaded the video to the wrong class. A parent saw the video and complained. Then the following January, after the Capitol attack, Han asked his class to read a ta Coates essay about Donald Trump called The First White President. It is insufficient to state the obvious of Donald Trump, that he is a white man who would not be president were it not for this fact. With one immediate exception, Trump's predecessors made their way to high office through the passive power of whiteness, that bloody heirloom which cannot ensure mastery of all events, but can conjure a tailwind for most of them. A second parent complained. He received an official reprimand. Then in April, while discussing Derek Chauvin's trial for the murder of George Floyd, Han says a student asked about white privilege. He showed a spoken word poem called White Privilege, performed and written by Kyla Janae Lacey. There's some bad language here. So if you're listening with kids, I'd skip ahead 30 seconds. Every day, what is white privilege? It is the acceptance of bombs over Baghdad, but not over Boston. It is European history being taught as a major and African as an elective. It is learning about my people only 28 days like I'm not black every fucking second as every white boy. Han says he attempted to mute out the bad language, but didn't catch it all. Before he played the video, he joked, I will probably get fired for showing this. He did. Han had been a teacher in Sullivan County for 16 years. His views had never gotten him into trouble in his conservative community before. But here he was, a white man, fired for talking about white privilege with his mostly white pupils. Had he gone too far? Or was he a victim, caught up in the frenzy of the anti-CRT movement? How are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. In February, I drove seven hours from Washington, D.C. to Kingsport, a town in the Appalachian Mountains in northeast Tennessee, to meet with Matthew Hahn. Um, and then we'll go to Central and then... Um, I spent a few days with him, driving around town and even attending a yoga class, which he does now to de-stress. A few green beans over there. She's got to try. Just try. You just got to try one bite. If you don't want I had meals with his family and his friends. We spent lots of time sitting at his kitchen table in his home the same home where he grew up as a child, while he told me about his troubles. He could go and teach in another state, but he says he can't leave Kingsport. His family is nearby, and it's where he's lived his whole life. He has roots there. Hans says he was fired because he dared to talk about white privilege. In the dismissal hearing, the director of Sullivan County Schools says it was because Han failed to share opposing viewpoints with his students. As a teacher licensed by the state of Tennessee, Pawn at all times has remained bound by the Tennessee Teacher Code of Ethics. This includes, but is not limited to, fulfilling the following obligations to students. Not unreasonably restrain the student from independent action in pursuit of learning. Not unreasonably deny the students access to varying points of view. But Han argues that in his majority white Appalachian town, his students encounter the opposing viewpoint every day of their lives. Han grew up in this town, 
He knows what these kids experience every day. He understands their perspective because he was once one of them. You know, I wasn't the way that I am now. I've had to change and learn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I will admit that I, was, I flew a rebel flag. You know, I had a rebel flag on the front of my car. And um, I look back at that young kid mm-hmm. and um, I'm disappointed in him. But I'm glad that he's realized exactly what that flag stood for and has made the change. And I think that's important for uh, our students in Northeast Tennessee to just understand and be given uh, different perspectives on that. Because I was taught... Over time, he says that he became more willing to consider concepts like white privilege. He wanted to share that experience with his students. It cost him his job and made him part of something that, at the time he didn't even know existed. You know, I, I thought that I was just doing my job, but I've come to realize that I've stepped into a national conversation. I was unaware of just how divisive mm-hmm. this thing called critical race theory was and is uh, continuing to be. I had no idea that, I, I didn't know what critical race theory was. Mm-hmm. Han is still fighting for his career. He is on his third appeal, which could take years before it is resolved. For now, he lives off of a GoFundMe started by his sisters and a six-week summer coaching job. He worries every day about his health. He's a type 1 diabetic and now must pay 100% of his insurance premiums. I've been thinking about Han's story a lot since we met. I do think he should have been more careful after that first warning. But to get fired? When I was a public school teacher, we often joked about the extreme measures it would take to get fired once you have tenure. Tenure is supposed to keep you employed, and most jobs have some kind of process to demonstrate improvement before dismissal. His firing is quite surprising. Based upon these charges as director of schools, I recommend the dismissal of Mr. Hahn. I would also ask Hahn was handed his dismissal papers on May 5, 2021, the same day Tennessee passed its anti-CRT law. This was probably a coincidence, but it tells you something about the political atmosphere that Han unknowingly stepped into. Many blame the pandemic and George Floyd's murder and subsequent protests for the anti-CRT movement gaining steam. Amanda Ray is another parent I spoke with from Scottsdale, Arizona. I think um, prior to COVID, nobody was watching the school board meetings. Nobody was paying attention to what was being done. We'd send our kids off to school. They'd get an education. They'd come home mostly happy. She says that the pandemic woke parents up to what was happening in their schools. We don't need our children being taught values that are that are different than what we that we believe that's the parents that's the parents' job. So I think as far as an awakening, um, I don't think that the school districts themselves have yet awakened to the fact that parents are the customer of the school district and they are there to serve the community and the parents and the students. Others say that George Floyd's murder sparked a flurry of progressive anti-racist messaging that overplayed its hand. Here's Bonnie Kerrigan-Snyder, the activist we heard from in the last episode. The year after George Floyd and the summer of unrest that followed that was was a year like none other. And it was really, I think that if it were sort of a snowball that was moving slowly, the politicization of the classroom 
just suddenly reached such a momentum that it overtook everything. Would Han have been fired if all of this had happened before the pandemic and George Floyd's murder? Would the CRT debate have become so heightened? I'm not sure. It is possible that the anti-CRT movement became powerful over the past year and a half because 2020 was so special. An unimaginable pandemic, an unimaginable crime. We could chalk it all up to an unimaginable year. This is part of the answer, but something else is going on here that is making people have outsized responses to what is actually being taught in schools. It wasn't until I was sitting in Arizona State House when the pieces of the puzzle began to really come together. I first realized that something might be up when I flew to Phoenix to learn more about the frenzied school board fighting and the anti-CRT bill moving through the legislature. While visiting the state's capital to speak with legislators, I realized I might as well attend a few education-related hearings. Nothing was going on about CRT specifically that day, but I thought I'd listen anyway. Uh, Next bill up. The hearing I chose started with a discussion about an education budget crisis. Mr. Chair and members, Senate Bill 1657 makes various changes to the Arizona Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. Then the committee discussed empowerment savings accounts, or ESAs. Schools get funding from federal, state, and local coffers. Usually students must attend schools in their local district or else pay tuition out of pocket. School choice advocates want to change that. At this time in Arizona, ESAs allowed some families, such as those with a child with disabilities, to take public funds, about $5,200 to $6,200, with them to private schools and other educational services, such as tutoring. Some call ESAs school vouchers. The latest bill was proposing to expand these vouchers to all children and increase the allowance to at least $6,500. It passed the legislature in June. This was all interesting enough. But then I looked at the audience. I noticed two women dressed in purple t-shirts with the saying, purple for parents. They were hissing when the superintendent spoke and clapping in agreement when the Republicans chimed in. I recognize the name. They are part of the anti-CRT movement. Uh, Mr. Chair. The um, first witness arguing for ESAs, school vouchers, was Matt Byenberg from the Goldwater Institute, a conservative think tank based in Phoenix. Uh, Members, this bill provides educational opportunity for thousands of Arizona students, um, including many of the most disadvantaged throughout the state. I remember Byenberg from an article I previously wrote about CRT. He was adamantly opposed to it. The meeting got prickly. My point was, and I don't believe I was yelling. Um, my point. What were anti-CRT activists doing at a school voucher hearing? What is the connection between school vouchers and the anti-CRT movement? I left the hearing feeling a bit insane. What is going on here? There's no way that I could confirm a connection between school vouchers and the anti-CRT movement. This was going to be a stretch. Turns out, it wasn't a stretch at all. A quick Google search showed more crossover between the people fighting against CRT and the broader school choice movement, which includes vouchers. In July last year, Betsy DeVos, 
former Secretary of Education under President Trump, wrote an opinion piece for Fox News titled, Let's Liberate Kids from Race Indoctrination with School Choice. And on the website of the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation, it says that the culture war could be extremely helpful for school choice advocates. And school choice legislation is moving through state governments alongside anti-CRT legislation. It's just getting less media attention. According to the National Education Association, 22 states created or expanded school voucher programs in 2021. So there's clearly a connection between some in the anti-CRT movement and school choice. But is this a cause for concern? Or is this a simple policy debate, an earnest push to improve public schools? To get universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. Because in order for people to take significant action, they have to feel like they have something at stake. That's the clip from Christopher Rufo that I keep coming back to. To unpack this, I thought it was important to understand the perspective of someone who supports school choice from an established conservative organization. I'm Jonathan Butcher, and I'm the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. He's no fan of critical race theory, as you'd expect. And he is a fan of school choice. Historically, um, Americans had the opportunity to choose a school for their child by moving. You would uh, move to a different neighborhood where your child would be assigned to a better school than the one to which they were assigned before. Um, but the sad fact was that not every family had that opportunity. And so it became essential for state lawmakers to consider proposals that gave um, scholarships, that gave the option to choose a different public school, uh, to families, uh, regardless of their income, regardless of where they live. So, school choice can take a number of forms. More than half of states offer some kind of school choice. There is uh, what are known as open enrollment laws, where you can choose a different public school other than the school to which your child was assigned. There are public charter schools, which are public schools started by parents, teachers, community leaders. They can hire and fire teachers uh, as they uh, feel is appropriate. They can choose their own curriculum. And then on the private choice side, there are K-12 private school scholarships, where just as it sounds, um, the state will allow families to use their child's portion of the education funding formula to go to a private school. And then there are education savings accounts or school vouchers, as discussed in the Arizona meeting I sat in on. This is an exciting, has you know great potential to meet the needs of children from all different walks of life, uh, because you can pay for um, a personal tutor, an education therapist, curriculum, private school tuition, really a host of, of different education experiences. So some anti-CRT advocates have said that the answer to racial indoctrination in schools and discussions and encouragement about homosexuality and other types of discussions that maybe conservative parents don't want their children to be a part of. Some people say that the answer to the anti-CRT movement is school choice. Do you agree with that? 
School choice is an essential component because parents can then see what their children are being taught. They can choose to uh, move their children to another school that may reflect their values better. And this component of parents deciding that their assigned school doesn't reflect their values and so they want to move their child somewhere else, that is an important part of why families should have the ability to choose how and where their children learn. So yes, school choice is a key component to all of this. It's a logical argument. Parents know better than anyone what their children need. And it should be up to them to decide how to educate them. If that means sending them to a school that isn't the local public one, so be it. There is something that worries me, though. When vouchers allow families to use public funds for private schools and services... How much money is that taking out of the system? Arizona's public schools are hardly flush with cash. The state ranks 48th in per-pupil spending. Could this risk taking so much money out of the public school system that it'll fall down? But Butcher says no. I was saying there are 49, 50 million children in in public schools today. Uh, There are about 600,000 using some form of education savings account or private school scholarship uh, through a, a school voucher or a tax credit scholarship. So the numbers just aren't there to say that the private school programs that have been created are uh, somehow draining resources from schools. So maybe there's nothing to worry about. Then I spoke with Charles Seiler. He used to work as a school choice lobbyist for the conservative Goldwater Institute, one of the organizations that had a speaker at that meeting in Arizona. Then he left. He says because he realized that the school choice movement did not have the best interests of students in mind. The actual impacts to people materially made them worse off. And uh, so I had questions about how we could change things and how we could evolve these policies. And, and those questions were really dismissed. And, and over time, I came to kind of recognize that they wanted these harmful outcomes for people because they were trying to achieve something else. And that just didn't align with why I was there. And so I started searching for kind of some answers. Look, We could talk for hours about whether school choice is good or not. There's plenty to dig into. If you look at the history, the school choice movement does have troubling beginnings. It started as an answer to school desegregation in the 1950s. White parents wanted to take public money to the private sector, where they could continue to send their kids to white-only schools. I've talked about how I used to be a public school teacher, but I also taught in a charter school in New York City. Charters are one example of school choice within the public education system. The truth is that many students, especially poor and minority students, are stuck with terrible options in their neighborhoods. So for these families, charters can be a great option. The school choice debate gets confusing because there are so many types. It can mean everything from being able to choose any public school rather than being assigned based in your neighborhood to being allowed to take public money out of the system and use it for private schools and services. And that's what Seiler says he thinks the anti-CRT movement is really about. He thinks the main goal is to defund public schools and ultimately privatize education. Even conservative voters and Republicans appreciate public education and good schools, but at the end of the day, they're not voting in support of public education. They're voting on these other kind of social issues. And so 
if you're a Republican or if you're a, like a conservative political strategist, you, you want to like advance your privatization agenda that's even unpopular with your own base. So the only way to do that is to get them upset at the schools about sexualizing your children or about inappropriate race theory or whatever other like scare they have. I mean, it was evolution at one point, you know, it was integration at one point. Like it's always some social issue. He sees the anti-CRT movement as a two-pronged attack. One prong gets the base excited and upset by talking about race and sexuality, while the other side chips away at the public school system. If you're talking about like the culture war bills, like say the bans on transgender athletes, that's different than like the bills that are pushing, mandating transparency of uh, teaching materials and curricula. The transgender stuff is there to like fire up a specific portion of, uh, of the base while also screening for the unpopular privatization stuff. And then the other stuff like the transparency bills also fire up people, but those are forwarded to actually break the system by like just making it untenable, just putting so many burdens on the public school system that it can't function. I asked the Goldwater Institute for a statement in response to Charles Seiler's comments. They didn't get back to me. Seiler is not the only person who thinks this is what's going on. Gloria Ladson-Billings is a retired professor of education from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She wrote the foundational text calling for a critical race theory framework to be used in education, not in classrooms, but within research, back in the 90s. I asked her about this view, that the anti-CRT movement is wrapped up with a more general push to privatize education. Her answer surprised me. Well, you know, I think I probably said this something similar to this 15 years ago and people said I was an alarmist. Uh, and it's, it's not just on public schooling. It's on the public, period. I grew up in Philadelphia at a time when if you wanted to traverse the city, you took public transportation. If you wanted your kids to be vaccinated, you took them to the public health clinic. If you were trying to get out of substandard housing, you got your name on the list so that you could get into public housing. And if you wanted your children to do better than you did, than your generation did, you sent them to the public school. Currently in America, public services are largely used by the poorest citizens who can't afford private options. Public health care, Medicaid and Medicare, is mostly used by people who are poor or disabled and senior citizens. Public transportation, with the exception of some big cities, is used mostly by the poor. Latson Billings sees this as part of a pattern. So the last little domino in the public sector is public schooling. So I don't, you know, I, I have challenged public school advocates to not try to isolate yourself and think you are different from other aspects of the public sector. So I think it's interesting that now people are finally recognizing that public education is under attack, but the public itself has been under attack. When I first heard this, it all sounded a bit conspiracy theory to me. I resisted the idea. Is the anti-CRT movement actually part of a larger push to privatize the public sector? 
Meanwhile, at school boards, things are getting weirder and weirder. In my reporting, I came across literal conspiracy theorists holding court at school board meetings. QAnon picking up some new momentum. Its followers are running for school boards and local offices, spreading the gospel of Q, but not calling it QAnon. And so some QAnon followers have been running to join their local school board without making their links to the movement explicit. Communist school boards are now indoctrinating our children with transsexual propaganda and teaching them to be racist against white people by teaching racist Biden's critical racist theory. What is Ron Watkins, QAnon conspiracy theorist, political candidate, and former administrator of 8chan, the man I mentioned in the last episode, doing shouting outrageous things at a school board meeting? For QAnon supporters, the way CRT is characterized by its critics is another pressing threat to America's children, just one level down from the made-up satanic pedophile conspiracy the movement is peddling. And QAnon's interest says something bigger about the power of the anti-CRT rhetoric. It shows just how potent and sticky it is. The way fears about CRT have been framed has huge emotional and mobilizing power for millions of people who otherwise have quite different politics. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The rhetoric of the anti-CRT movement has become a rallying cry for the right. And quite different bits of the right. It's being used to move forward wonkish policies like school choice. And it's being embraced by the likes of Q conspiracy theorists running for local office on very different platforms. And the reason this stuff is so powerful to such a broad audience is not by accident. Words matter. Uh, My name is Jason Stanley. I'm a professor of philosophy at Yale University. Stanley studies how ideas spread, evolve, and take hold in different societies. And he argues that part of the answer to the anti-CRT movement's success comes back to Christopher Rufo. Well, to call it a movement is a bit much. I would call it a campaign. Uh, To use the words of Christopher Rufo, uh, it's a persuasion campaign. It's a kind of weaponization of language. In this case, a weaponization of the phrase critical race theory. It's safe to say that Stanley and Rufo don't get along. They've had something of a battle of the minds online, between opinion pages and Twitter. To Stanley, Rufo is an expert propagandist. Listen to Rufo here. Critical race theory is their own term, um, but they made a, I think, monumental mistake when they branded it with those words. The public is not interested in critical. The public is interested in generative. You know, race, obviously, immediately just using that word is 
has political valence, signals a kind of harder edge than something like diversity. And then theory, Americans are practical, not theoretical. And so you have three words and then they string them together and it's honest and accurate and it's their own language um, that, that we've been able to really take and then use as a battering ram, a political battering ram to break open the debate on, on these issues. Political messengers can create negative campaigns by associating one thing with something bad. So eventually people come to associate the two things. When they think of one thing, then they instantly think of the other. An example of this is welfare. It's now common knowledge that our welfare system has itself become a poverty trap, a creator and reinforcer of dependency. That's why last year... The Reagan administration managed to get white Americans to vote against welfare by pairing it with this welfare queen image, a black woman driving in a Cadillac who takes thousands from the federal government and has a bundle of children to keep feeding off of the government. To this day, people associate welfare with black people, despite the fact that white Americans receive more than black Americans in aggregate. Stanley claims that Rufo is doing the same thing by linking critical race theory with negative concepts, reverse racism, making white children feel bad, and then linking that with public education. He is also now doing something similar with LGBT identities, drag queens, and pedophilia. By the way, I am by no means conflating homosexuals or drag queens with pedophiles, but by tweeting and retweeting about all of them together, Rufo is, says Stanley. Rufo is doing an advertising campaign. He's trying to get your mind, when you think of a public school, public school teacher, to think pedophile. In case you have not been following Rufo's Twitter feed, here is an example from May. At least 135 teachers and teacher's aides have been arrested so far this year on child sex-related crimes in the U.S., ranging from child pornography to raping students. Here he's quoting from a Fox News article he had linked to in the tweet. These propaganda techniques only work if they prey on current social ills, like racism, homophobia, and fear of child predators, says Stanley. Public schools are in everybody's self-interest, right? And Rufo wants to destroy the public schools. So how is he going to go about doing that? Well, he discovered that the phrase critical race theory is a powerful dog whistle. Now we've moved on to gender ideology, what he calls gender ideology. He's going to say that these institutions, public schools, are structured by that. And the ultimate goal is to destroy these institutions. Rufo's campaign would not work as well if he had not selected topics that activate strong negative emotions. Imagine if Rufo had chosen to associate public schools with something more innocuous and more cuddly. Look, suppose the public schools are spreading pro-bunny ideology. You know, like my kids' class just got, they just got funding for spreading pro-bunny ideology. They're getting the kids to love bunnies. Or they have an extra class of bunny love, like taking bunnies home and coming to push for bunnies over dogs. Do you think that would get people really riled up? It would have no effect because there's no prior ideology of anti-bunniness. So Rufo has effectively paired public schools with some of America's deepest, darkest social ills, like racism and homophobia. He has been so effective that he has managed to create a rallying cry, getting friendly media to spread his message. (laughs) 
I've had a lot to think about since I first met Christopher Rufo last December. So I wanted to talk to him again about everything that's happened. I wanted to ask him if he really does want to take down public schools and why. Could he ever have predicted when he first appeared on Tucker Carlson Tonight in September 2020 that nearly two years later he'd be here, the de facto leader of a movement that has become a new front in the culture war? I also wanted to give him an opportunity to respond to Stanley's charge. Is he a propagandist? Well, I, I, I think that it's, uh, I mean, it's absurd for two reasons. The first reason is that uh, when the left does it, they call it an advocacy campaign or an activism campaign. Uh, but when the right does it, they call it a propaganda campaign and, uh, uh, you know, whatever terrible epithet they have uh, loaded and ready to go. And so I, I think it's just very funny that uh, and, and very telling that uh, they really are not used to the political right having successful activism. And so they're trying to uh, explain it away by calling it propaganda. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Whatever the label, Rufo is clearly having an impact. In fact, he has shaped the conversation around CRT to an extraordinary degree. When I first met with him in December, he was incredibly proud of all he'd done. We've pierced the consciousness of the public with no reason, it's, it's, it's me and Armin uh, and a couple other people. Armin is Rufo's assistant who was sitting in on the interview. And we've done this against diversity and inclusion bureaucracies, the entire academic establishment, um, the uh, teachers unions. Um, so a group of quite literally four or five individuals has in the realm of public opinion defeated the most powerful institutions in our country with tens of billions of dollars in annual financing um, and millions upon millions of members, employees, and activists. I would not say that Rufo, in the public's mind or otherwise, has defeated the most powerful institutions in our country yet, but he's certainly trying. And when we caught up recently, he felt the campaign had made huge progress. I think what's happened in the past six months is that the fight uh, on critical race theory has moved from a uh, uh, rhetorical uh, or intellectual phase into a public policy phase. Our side has really decisively won the intellectual fight. And so what's happened is that legislators have started to take action. And this legislation is popular. And I think it's already started to correct what was really a broad uh, left-wing overreach uh, in public schools. He says that this legislation, the laws we talked about in episode one, aims to correct what he sees as a dangerous imbalance of power. And I'll be very clear. We are going to take power away from the teachers unions. We are going to take power away from the public school bureaucrats. We're going to give that power back to parents and back to families where it belongs. But Christopher Rufo is adamant that he is not destroying public schools. He argues that the public school system has undermined itself. The people who have damaged public schools uh, since 2020 in a really catastrophic way uh, are, are not conservative activists. They're actually public school administrators and bureaucrats. And so when I say that there is a, 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 a sense of universal distrust, it's not that I'm creating universal distrust or conservatives are creating universal distrust. The teachers unions, 
the public school bureaucracies have created immense and unprecedented distrust among parents who are furious at the lockdowns, who are furious at the COVID, uh, uh, nonsensical COVID protocols, and who are furious at the uh, at public schools for injecting a curriculum based on critical race theory and gender ideology. And so from that premise, you have very strong ground to then offer a comprehensive, bold, and really generational change. And this is universal school choice. And Rufo's vision stretches well beyond public education. A few days before we last spoke, he posted the following on Twitter, outlining his policy ambitions for the next time a Republican president is in office. The idea is to centralize ideological control over the federal agencies in the White House and create a team at the Office of Management and Budget to enforce it. We could easily wipe out a significant portion of the infrastructure for the left-wing ideologies within the federal bureaucracy, which would shift American politics in the right direction. And then he tweeted that he was heading to Maine to spend some time with Tucker Carlson. When I started this journey, I thought that the answer to the craziness would be fairly simple. As a former teacher, I was sure that I knew what was happening. It was probably all a deep misunderstanding. It would die down soon. I had no idea that my exploration would reveal all of this. So what is happening here? How do we get to the point where the American Library Association logged around 1,600 challenges or removals of books in schools, libraries, and universities last year, the highest number of attempted book bans since it started counting 20 years ago. Well, let's attempt to remove the emotions and face the facts. Critical race theory is not faultless. It has certainly grown in scope when compared to the original legal theory. The concept was first expanded by the left into ideas like critical whiteness studies, made popular through books like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. These concepts are controversial, and we have all gone through bad diversity trainings. Not only are they awkward, but research shows that they often do not help and can sometimes make bias worse. But both academic research and my reporting also shows that CRT, both the original legal theory and the conservative distortion, is not as widespread in schools as anti-CRT activists say. And some of these CRT-type curricula that have been studied, ethnic studies and social-emotional learning, for example, seem to boost academic performance. Some parents on the anti-CRT side have legitimate concerns and deserve to be heard when it comes to their children. And of course, some educators can take things too far. But beyond anecdotes, the anti-CRT side does not have much evidence of harm. And here's the thing. 90% of American kids attend public schools. And when you ask parents about their kids' own school, they're pretty happy. A poll from NPR and Ipsos from April this year found 76% of parents say their child's school does a good job of keeping them informed about their curriculum, one of the main concerns of the anti-CRT movement. But the anti-CRT campaign may be working. While parents are generally happy with their kids' school, Trust in the system overall is falling, and the partisan divide over schools 
is getting wider. According to Gallup, over the past two years, the percentage of Americans with a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in public schools has dipped from 41% to 28% among Americans in general, and just 14% among Republicans. It is tempting to say that this is politics as usual in America, a typical battle of concerned parents, progressives and conservatives, battling it out over history lessons and policy issues. But there is nothing usual about this. It is also tempting to blame an unusual year. 2020 was intense, and we could chalk this up to the pandemic and the racial reckoning that occurred after George Floyd's murder. But the success of Christopher Rufo's tactics, piggybacked by others, do not allow for such a simple explanation. His goals are clear, to diminish public schools in the eyes of the public. Others have followed suit. And this issue is unlikely to go away anytime soon, particularly with the midterm elections coming up this fall. Here is Gavin Newsom, California's Democratic governor, in a political ad airing in Florida. Freedom is under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote, restricting speech in classrooms. And here is J.D. Vance, a Republican Senate candidate in Ohio. I've talked to parents of children in southwest Ohio suburban schools who've pulled their 11-year-old kids out of school because they were teaching their, their daughter that she was bad because she was white, she was an oppressor because she was white. This is not acceptable. This is Public schools are finding themselves in the crosshairs of tense political battles. Can they stand up to the onslaught? If you've enjoyed this deep dive into critical race theory, you can read more of my work on the topic by becoming an Economist subscriber. It's the only way you'll be able to read, watch, and listen to everything we do. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe and it's in the notes for this episode. You can also go to our new webpage, Economist.com slash checks pod to hear this series and delve into the checks and balance archive. That's Economist.com slash checks pod. This series was written and produced by me, Tamara jokes and Harriet Noble. Thank you to Stevie Hertz for our help with this episode and Amika Shortino-Nolan for help and advice across the series. Nicola Rofas did the sound design and mixing for episode three. Rachel Horwood is our fact checker and John Prito is our editor. Kosi Obuli and Gadi Epstein were our voice actors. Thank you to Matthew Hahn, Amanda Ray, Jonathan Butcher, Charles Seiler, Gloria Ladson-Billings, Jason Stanley, and Christopher Rufo for speaking to me for this episode. And thank you for listening. John and the Checks and Balance team will be back next week to resume normal service. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.